Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. to Take You in Action PA episode 49. I'm Calvin. I'm your host. Uh, I want to apologize for everyone watching live. There was a bit of a delay at the beginning. I had some technical difficulties, uh, but we got it all worked out. So we are good to go now. Uh, I just wanted to start by saying uh, definitely subscribe on any podcatchers that you're using uh, on our youtube channel we're also on twitter and facebook so definitely follow us there as well uh at lp mises caucus pa is where you can find all of our content or you can search uh take human action pa on any podcatcher so um one thing i wanted to share um before we start is we have a bit of an announcement so i'm gonna share the screen real quick to do that and i'll 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 read it out for anyone who's listening to just the audio version so uh bear with me here all right so we have our uh, Liberty 101 class, as mentioned on previous episodes, we have a date now. It's going to be Thursday, August 17th uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, and it's going to be at Mosh Tray Solutionary Center. We've already lined up some amazing sponsors for the event. Uh, Liberty Speaks, Porcupine Gear, uh, the Mises Caucus, of course, and uh, the new Christian Caucus. So we're really looking forward to that. We're going to talk about uh, libertarian principles, inflation, foreign policy, medical freedom, criminal justice, education, the Constitution, and the Second Amendment. So uh, we're going to break down all the important issues of liberty, the basics, a crash course for everyone who may not be uh, as well uh, initiated into these ideas as uh, some of us uh, might be. This would be the perfect way to get started. So definitely uh, mark your calendars for that. Um, it's going to be super exciting. You don't want to miss out on that. Uh, our own Regina Badger will also be leading a horticulture class. We'll be having a live taping of this very podcast. Uh, and we'll have an after party as well. And we're lining up more sponsors. So definitely stay tuned for that. So with that out of the way, so I'm going to uh, bring on our guests in one moment here. Just want to make sure I get all the uh, information right. So uh, he is uh, a recent uh, tour speaker at, at the Take Human Action Tour events that we've been doing. Uh, he spoke at three of them. Uh, he's the National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center, uh, Managing Editor of Shift Gold website. Uh, he's the author of many books, including the Constitution Owner's Manual, uh, Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty, uh, Smashing Myths, Understanding Madison's Notes on Nullification, and Nullification Objections, uh, Dismantling the Opposition, uh, along with Michael Boldman on that one, and much, much more you can find more information on him in the description of the episode uh so with that i'll bring on the guy himself uh mike how are you doing i'm doing great calvin thanks for having me on your show i appreciate it yeah it was great uh meeting you 
at the uh, event. So, um, yeah, when you you spoke at three of them, so it was great to have you at all those different events. Thanks for traveling around for the caucus. Yeah. Yeah, it was exciting. Uh, I was in uh, New York City, Chicago, and Austin, which I tell you what, it's a lot of traveling in a, in a short amount of time. It kind of wore me out, but, uh, you know, just really cool to see kind of how these ideas are are, they're spreading, you know, they're everywhere. And it, and it was, uh, it was neat to, to be in those different venues and, and see good crowds at every event. I uh, really had a good time doing it and, uh, you know, appreciate everything that uh, Michael Heiss and, and others have done to, to make that tour happen. Good stuff. Oh yeah. He ha- was really working hard on that. I, I could tell he seemed to be busy all the time trying to put yeah. that together. Um, uh, really glad that it, it went off, uh, Mostly without a hitch, especially the the New York event that I was at. It had a yeah. lot of really good speakers. Um, you def- definitely had a full space there, and I, you know, if they have it again next year, I would I would do that too. Yeah, for sure. All right. So uh, now, before we get uh, into the meat of the episode, um, how I want to give you an opportunity to say how did the Mike Meharry we know now come to be? (laughs) (laughs) How did you get started in all these uh, crazy issues that that we uh, call Liberty and how you got involved the 10th Amendment Center? Yeah. You know, the older I get, the harder it is to do this because, you know, the, the, the path kind of keeps going. Um, But the short version is I kind of came from the, uh, pretty traditional right-wing Republican worldview. Um, You know, looking back in my 20s and 30s, I had a lot of the right instincts um, in terms of I believed in the idea of limited government and and those kind of things that Republicans talk about, uh, but do a pretty crappy job of executing when you get down to it. Uh, And like a lot of folks, I kind of got pulled into political activism through the Tea Party movement uh, around 2008, 2009, 2010 in that ballpark. And um, I had just graduated from journalism school. I'd gone back to school and um, went to a few Tea Party rallies and kind of thought, you know, going to rallies, holding a sign, that's really not going to accomplish a whole lot in the big scheme of things. I figured I needed to kind of get involved somewhere if I really cared about these pressing issues and that kind of intuitive desire to see limited government decentralization uh, drove me to the 10th amendment center. I knew about the 10th amendment. I knew that was an important part of the constitution that the federal government was doing far too much. And uh, so it seemed like a good place to get involved. I had no idea what I was getting into at the time, you know, cause I thought, well, these guys must be Republicans, right? Because Republicans are for the Constitution and limited government. I, I, I was with the Tenth Amendment Center about six weeks um, before I realized that the uh, Republicans were almost as bad as the Democrats when it comes to those things. It's all talk. Um, but really, that's kind of what took me toward the path to liberty. And I often joke that the Tenth Amendment and, and uh, constitutional originalism is kind of a gateway drug to liberty. Um, and, you know, just as I began to study, uh, and, and first off, understand that the two party system was a a joke and not going to really accomplish anything if we care about freedom and liberty. Um, and and then kind of moving into more of the philosophical stuff, I got to know people like Tom Woods and, and others in this movement. And, uh, you know, eventually I went from, kind of that uh, right-wing Republican to what I now would describe myself as an anarchist or a voluntarist. Um, and, and really that was kind of a, it's kind of a slow burn, a lot of uh, reading and learning and kind of processing information, but um, really a credit to the folks that I've gotten to know through my work at the 10th Amendment Center. And um, really thankful for the the people that that kind of put me in touch with. And, and really that I think is how this movement grows. It's uh, it's those of us who understand the ideas of liberty and the principles uh, getting with other people and teaching them. 
and I had some really great people along the way that have helped me. And uh, so now it's kind of a, a privilege to be able to do the same in, in a number of uh, venues. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what brought me to where I am today. And, uh, now I'm, uh, a, a radical libertarian that still talks about the constitution. <laughs> Aren't we all to one extent or another? Right. <laughs> yeah. But I would definitely say that, uh, at least on my part, uh, you know, looking at the constitution more and more as a, as an instrument to bring about positive change as, has come from the work that, um, you guys have done at the 10th amendment center. So with, with that said, um, why don't you talk about, you know, some people may not even know, like if they're uninitiated, like I was saying, they may not know what the 10th amendment is or yeah. they may not know what the 10th amendment center is. So, um, why don't you talk to us about that? Yeah. That reminds me of a funny story, actually, you know, uh, to Thomas Jefferson called the 10th amendment, the cornerstone of the foundation of the constitution, and today it has been relegated to almost, uh, uh, you know, something that you would find in a history book. Um, there's a, a saying that if you are taking the bar exam or uh, studying for the bar exam, they'll actually tell you that if you're uh, looking at a question that has multiple choice answers, and if one of those answers is the 10th Amendment, you can immediately eliminate that answer uh, because it will always be wrong. So, you know, according to the world today, the 10th Amendment is always the wrong answer, which is a, a far cry from what Thomas Jefferson said, uh, that it is the foundation of the Constitution. But it's really a very simple thing, and it's, uh, it's what is known as a rule of construction. So, in, in effect, the 10th Amendment didn't actually do anything. The Constitution would be the same if the 10th Amendment had never been included. But the 10th Amendment tells us how to read the document. And all it says is that any power that is not delegated to the federal government remains with the states and the people. So if you look at the Constitution, there are specific enumerated powers. And by enumerated, that just really means a list, uh, a list of powers that the federal government has. And logic will tell you that if you go to the trouble to make a list, then anything that's not on the list is excluded from the list, right? So if I say, you know, you have these 10 powers, um, I don't have to say you don't have these other 165 powers. If you did, I would have put them on the list. That's kind of how the Constitution is. It has enumerated powers, specific powers that the federal government are supposed to be able to exercise. The 10th Amendment tells us that any power that isn't listed remains with the states and the people. And, you know, I kind of joked about uh, being a, a radical libertarian who still talks about the Constitution. This is precisely why. Because the Constitution, first off, it is something that pretty much every American has some respect for, some knowledge of. They recognize that it's important. They recognize that things are supposed to be constitutional, even if they don't understand what it means. So it gives me a starting place to help people to understand my political philosophy uh, and, and the idea of limited government. When you talk about enumerated powers, it's a place to start that most people will understand. If I go to somebody in the street and start talking about, well, we should just get rid of government, eh, you know, a lot of people are going to think I'm nuts. And uh, maybe I am, but I think I'm right in that case. But that's not the starting point. So the Constitution gives me a starting point. And because most power in the American system was supposed to be remaining with the states and the people, then that is effectively a decentralizing mechanism. And really at the core, that's what I'm all about. When it comes to practical politics, my primary driving underlying philosophy is decentralization. I believe that it is better if we're going to have government at all, it's better to have powers distributed and spread out through a number of sources as opposed to having all of the power in one place, centralized in Washington, D.C. I believe that concentrated power is the biggest threat to liberty. And interesting, interestingly, a lot of the folks in the founding generation thought the same thing. They called it consolidation. And if you look at the ratification debates when they were talking about whether or not they were going to ratify the Constitution, the big issue for a lot of the folks who were opposed to ratification was that they were afraid it was going to create a consolidated government, that it was going to allow power to centralize in this new 
federal government. And of course, the people who were supporting ratification of the Constitution were saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen. You know, we've got these enumerated powers, and that's all the federal government's going to be able to do. And that was kind of the assurance that allowed the Constitution to get um, ratified to begin with. Nobody was saying, well, we want this big centralized giant, you know, biggest government in the history of the world. Uh, you know, sometimes I think Alexander Hamilton might have been thinking that in the back of his head, but he never said it out loud because he knew if he did, everybody would reject that idea. So the Constitution is at its core a decentralizing um, document. And in today's system, it gives us a mechanism that we can actually use to begin to try to decentralized power. Obviously, power has been greatly centralized. Um, you know, if you look at Federalist number 45, which is where James Madison described what the federal government was supposed to look like, he said the powers delegated to the federal government by the proposed constitution are few and defined. And he said those which would remain with the states and the people are numerous and indefinite. And he went on and he explained that the powers given to the federal government were primarily uh, surrounding things like war and peace, foreign trade. He said all of the things that deal with the rights and liberties of the individuals and, and the, the, uh, the states would remain with the states and the people. Now, clearly, we don't have that anymore. And you know we could go into a long discussion about how all of that kind of broke down. Uh, but I don't know that that's necessarily important other than to understand that we do have a system that's been flipped on its head, but we have an ability through this, uh, the system as it exists to actually flip it back upright and begin to decentralize and devolve power back to states. And ultimately, we'd like to see it devolve to localities. And ultimately, ultimately, we'd love to see power devolve to the individual because really the individual is the source of, of all power and all sovereignty. But we have to start somewhere. So my work is primarily focused on trying to get the federal government to stop doing so much of what the federal government is doing. We have arguably the biggest, most powerful government in the history of the world. And it's involved in every aspect of our lives. It controls our money. It even tells us how much water we can have in our toilet or um, you know, how, what kind of light bulbs we can screw into our light fixtures. Uh, it tells us what plant we can grow in our backyard. It's a ridiculous level of overreach, but it's not supposed to have that power. And there's a way to devolve it back. And really, that was the core of the talk that I gave at the, uh, the Take Human Action events. And it's really the cornerstone of everything we do at the 10th Amendment Center. It's this thing called nullification. You mentioned uh, that word when you were talking about some of the books that I've written. And, and really, all nullification means is that you are stopping something in effect. Now, there's actually a legal definition for nullification, but that's not really important. I'm just talking about the common definition of nullification. Perfect example is if you go out on the highway. I, I live in central Florida. So if you go on one of the interstates here in central Florida and the speed limit will say 55 miles an hour, there ain't nobody driving 55 miles an hour. That law is on the books, but it has been effectively nullified. It is not enforceable because there's no way that the police can stop everybody. Um, that is, in effect, what we're trying to do to the federal government. The federal government is doing all of this stuff. It doesn't have the personnel or resources to do all of this stuff. It depends on state and local action to do almost everything that it does. So if we can get state and local governments to stop cooperating, then we can shut down at least some of what the federal government is doing. And this is exactly the blueprint that James Madison gave us in Federalist number 46, which you'll notice is right after Federalist number 45. So in 45, he tells us that we're going to have this limited government. The powers of the federal government would be few and defined. The obvious question is, well, what do you do if the federal government starts doing things that aren't on the list? If it starts going beyond its few and defined powers? And James Madison in Federalist 46 gave us a blueprint. He said that the means of opposition are powerful and at hand. When the federal government commits an unwarrantable act, which by that he meant unconstitutional, or he said, interestingly, even a warrantable act, a constitutional act, a legal act that happens to be unpopular, 
the means of opposition are powerful and at hand. And he listed some things uh, that you can do. He talked about governors protesting. He talked about vote the bums out. He didn't say vote the bums out, but that was an, in essence part of the, of the plan. But the most important thing that he told us is that we can refuse to cooperate with officers of the union. And those are exact words he used in Federalist number 46. You can go read it. Refuse to cooperate with the officers of the union. And he said if one state did this, it would create impediments. It would make it difficult for the federal government to do what it's trying to do. He said if numerous states got together and refused to cooperate, he said it would create impediments which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. And this is absolutely true. This blueprint works. Madison understood even then, before the Constitution was ratified, that it was going to require actions from states and localities and individuals for the federal government to do anything because it wasn't going to have enough people or enough power to do it themselves. And he understood that if this cooperation with, was withdrawn, that the federal government would have a hard time accomplishing whatever aims that it might have. And we've seen this work with the legalization of marijuana. We now have I've lost count, actually. I know there's 37 states that have medical marijuana. I think there's 21 now that have legalized for recreational marijuana. But the federal government will still tell you that marijuana is absolutely prohibited. The problem is, because all of these states have stopped enforcing it, the federal government can't enforce it, and it's basically just given up at this point. The federal government has the same personnel and resource problem in everything. So we can take this model of not enforcing at the state and local level to all kinds of other things besides marijuana. So for instance, federal gun control, let's say the federal government decides they're going to ban um, assault rifles, whatever in the hell an assault rifle is, you know, they would require state and local cops to help them enforce this federal gun control. If state and local cops didn't help there's no way in the world that they could ever enforce this kind of ban. It simply is impossible. The ATF only has like 2,500 employees in the enforcement realm. It's not enough. Uh, just like the DEA can't enforce marijuana prohibition with all of these states ignoring the federal law and not enforcing it. The same thing would happen in the instance of gun control. Um, you could shut down national health care by simply having state and local governments refuse to implement Obamacare. Uh, the enforcement mechanism of Obamacare is primarily through state insurance, age, uh, state insurance departments. If those insurance departments weren't enforcing the rules, the rules wouldn't get enforced. There are no federal, there's no federal insurance agents, you know, that doesn't exist. Um, sound money by states encouraging the use of gold and silver. We can undermine the Federal Reserve's monopoly on money. We can even attack the warfare state by having governors refuse to commit National Guard units to active duty combat unless there's a real declaration of war or unless one of the constitutional criteria for uh, activation of the militia um, is, is implored, implore, not implored, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, one of the constitutional uh, justifications for the militia is uh, employed. So there are all kinds of issues that we can use this nullification strategy, which is just refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. Um, and that's what we do at the 10th Amendment Center. If people are really interested in this, <clears throat> if they want to understand the strategy better, I encourage them to go to 10thamendmentcenter.com. 10th is spelled out. So it's just 10thamendmentcenter.com, all one word. On the very front page, you can go to um, about halfway down the page, you'll see our State of the Nullification Movement Report. It's a free PDF. You can download it right there, and it will explain not only the philosophy behind nullification and, and the legal justifications for it, the constitutional justifications. We also go through many issues and show exactly how we apply that uh, strategy to those specific issues. And uh, that'll give you a good starter on what we're doing at the 10th Amendment Center. One final thing that I want folks to understand, the Supreme Court has actually upheld this strategy consistently since 1842. 
I generally don't care what politically connected lawyers in black dresses have to say about the Constitution because 99% of the time they're wrong. But in this case, they've given us a valuable tool and they've got one thing right. It's called the anti-commandeering doctrine. It's supported by five major Supreme Court cases. And in effect, all it says is that the federal government cannot force a state government or a local government to use its personnel or resources to enforce a federal law or implement a federal program. Can't do it. The federal government cannot tell the state of Florida that you have to enforce federal gun control. Now, the state of Florida can't like interfere with the uh, ATF if they're trying to enforce it, but they don't have to help. And again, this is key. If the state and local governments aren't helping, it ain't getting done. I use this example a lot. If you've ever watched the TV news and you've seen like one of these drug raids, uh, you'll see one guy in a DEA jacket and then you'll see like 30 sheriffs or local cops. Well, what happens if the sheriffs and local cops just don't show up? You know, it's a team effort. What happens when half the team quits? That's the beauty of this simple strategy. We can take power away from the federal government bring it back to the state and local level. And that creates a more decentralized system. And I think that really is what is key. Again, I don't have any love for state governments. I don't have any love for local governments. I know that state and local governments can be just as awful um, as the federal government. But here's the thing. If you have 50 state governments, they're competing against each other. And I have options. I used to live in Kentucky. I don't live in Kentucky anymore because I got tired of paying huge uh, state income tax bills every single year. I also got tired of being cold. <laughs> so there's that. But that's the beauty of a decentralized system. And, you know, if you want to live in a, a socialist paradise, you can go to California. Perfectly welcome to go there. If you don't like it there, you can go to Texas or you can go to New Hampshire. Uh, so there's it, it creates opportunity and option and competition. That's why I love decentralization. It's not because I elevate states or local governments. It's because I think competition is good, just like it's good in the economic realm, just because competition makes things better. We don't want monopolies in the, uh, the, the economic realm, especially monopolies that are um, you know forced by government. In the same way, we don't want monopoly government, and that's exactly what we have with the feds, and that's what we're trying to do away with at the Tenth Amendment Center. So it's a strategy of decentralization. It's a strategy of knocking down the feds, and the other good aspect of it is, is it teaches people that we don't have to go along with whatever government says. And a lot of people have that mentality. You know, that, oh, the federal government says da, da, da. Well, who cares? Don't have to do it. So if we don't have to do it and we don't do it, people get used to that. And I think it makes for a more uh, kind of a, a positive environment for liberty. So, um, you know, that's a real quick overview of, um, of what we do at the 10th Amendment Center. But again, if you go to TenthAmendmentCenter.com and download the State of the Nullification Movement Report, you can get a much better uh, view of the strategy and, and kind of how it all works. Well, that was definitely uh, very comprehensive. Uh, so it's, it's good to get. That was that was my take human action speech in in Cliff Note forms. <laughs> there you go. So uh, yeah, one thing that always comes to mind uh, when I'm talking about or with anyone from the take human action, or sorry, take human action, the Tenth Amendment Center um, is something that Michael Heiss told me um, about how the. Uh, Mises Caucus as a whole, and now the idea of the Project Decentralized Revolution took a lot of inspiration from the ideas of nullification and this Tenth Amendment Center strategy. So there's definitely a lot of uh, similarities between uh, what we're trying to do here, um, Project Decentralized Revolution, for those who may not be familiar with it, uh, is the idea, among other things, um, Mike did a video on it on the main Mises Caucus channel, but um, one part of it is taking local offices and running candidates in those races to enact nullification mm -hmm. at that local level to do basically exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And I don't think people realize 
most people. I think people maybe in our circles do realize it because we're more engaged in the political process than a lot of people. But I think most people have the impression that we can't really make a difference. And that's because everybody focuses all of their effort at the federal level. And I mean, I called, you know, back in the day, I used to call my congressman. What a- Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Waste of time, right? I mean, if you're lucky, you talk to an intern who doesn't care what you're talking about. They're never going to actually tell the representative that you even called. They might record it. And then if you're really lucky, you'll get an email that may or may not have to do with the issue that you talked about. If you don't have big lobby money, Nobody in Congress gives two, you know, what's about what you have to say. You have no impact or influence at the federal level. And yet we spend billions of dollars trying to elect the next president. I always joke. I can tell you every four years exactly what's going to happen. I can already tell you that after we have the next election, no matter who is elected president, after their administration is over, the federal government will be bigger more powerful and deeper in debt. I don't care if it's a Republican, a Democrat, who it is, that's the system that we have in Washington, D.C. But the good news is, if you call your state representative, you can actually have an impact on them. I had a state rep that I knew pretty well in the state of Kentucky a number of years ago tell me that he often went through an entire legislative session without ever having a constituent call him about a specific bill. They're not used to getting any kind of public pressure. So imagine for a moment that this state representative who never gets a phone call on a bill all of a sudden gets a phone call um, from 45 people on one specific piece of legislation. It freaks them out. And we've seen things move at the state level because of public pressure where you hardly ever see that happen at the federal level. A perfect example recently, there's a bill that is moving through the Texas legislature now that would actually create a state-issued 100% back digital um, transactional currency that's backed by gold and silver. Um, So basically a way to create an alternative for folks to do business in the state of Texas or anywhere really uh, using sound money instead of Federal Reserve notes. It creates a way to undermine the Federal Reserve's monopoly on money. This bill was going nowhere. Tenth Amendment Center did an article on it. Um, We republished that article at the Shift Gold website. Zero Hedge republished that article from Shift Gold. And all of a sudden, these legislators in Texas started getting all these phone calls from people saying, we want this. This is great. Let's do this. And now that bill is actually going to get a vote on the House floor probably uh, in the next couple of days. Something that would have never happened without that public pressure. So think about that when you're looking at political strategy. You have much more impact at your state and, of course, your local level. Uh, you know, you can go to a city council meeting and talk to a city council member and actually create pressure and activism. It's not going to always work, but you have much more influence and power than you would Um, in a situation where you're trying to change things through Congress and Senate. So we really want to change the mindset. And that's one of the things I love about what the Mises Caucus is doing uh, with this uh, revolution, decentralized revolution, because it's changing the mindset where instead of trying to change the broken system from the top down, we do what we can do at the local level and then build that change from the bottom up. And that's exactly what happened with marijuana legalization. You know, it started off with just a bunch of people that wanted to smoke weed. Um, And then some people realizing, Hey, you know, this has some medical benefits. And then uh, the next thing you know, you've got the state of California who's legalizing medical marijuana and the feds are cracking down and the Supreme court says, no, you can't do that. And yet human action, people wanting to make that change, being willing to stand up and make that change have gotten us to the point where today, again, we have 
37 states that have now legalized uh, medical marijuana. And I think the feds are going to legalize it at some point in the near future simply because they can't maintain prohibition anymore. So I love the bottom-up strategy because it's effective. We can do it, and it works. Yeah, it's it's good that you mentioned that because that, that gives me a chance to bring up something that we're working on right now in Pennsylvania and it's something I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, Defend the Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned a lot on this show and um, back on episode 46, we had on Caleb Shreve, who's he's actually approaching it from he's actually approaching the decentralized revolution from both angles. He's running for township supervisor near Gettysburg, and he's also uh the chair of our the state party's uh public uh policy committee mm-hmm. so he is scheduling a meeting with his state representative to get them to sponsor defend the guard bill and i believe they're also chair of the uh, that person is the chair of the veterans affairs committee or whatever committee it is at, at the at the state level that the bill would be going to so we're we're making moves to get that through and you you better believe when it comes time that we're going to be making those calls. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know the defend the guard is a great example of the way a uh, something can build over time. I tell people this a lot because I think it's easy to get discouraged, right? It's easy to be pessimistic. We're fighting again, I would argue the biggest government in the history of the world, right? We're not going to get from there to the land of the free in a single day. In fact, it's interesting. Thomas Jefferson, there's a quote we use a lot at the Tenth Amendment Center. uh, And I think Thomas Jefferson hit the nail on the head. He said that the ground of liberty is to be gained by inches. So we take what we can and then we consolidate that and then we move forward from there. I think a lot of times people get upset and frustrated because they don't see immediate change. Well, we didn't get here in a day. It took 200 years to get to the point where we are now. We're not going to get back in a moment time. But if we are persistent and keep pushing forward, we will see things build over time. And Defend the Guard is a great example of this. This started years ago, actually in Maine, uh, was the first place that Defend the Guard was ever introduced. Didn't go anywhere. Um, and it just kind of fell out of sight for, for a number of years. And then a guy named Pat McGeehan, who's the state representative in uh, West Virginia, he introduced it, gosh, six, eight years ago, uh, and has introduced it every single year. And each year, there gets to be a little bit more buzz around it, and it gets a little bit, moves forward a little bit more. Uh, last year, we had, uh, I don't want, well over 30 states that introduced Defend the Guard. Uh, this year, we actually got it through where it passed a, uh, a full chamber for the first time. It passed in the uh, Arizona Senate, I believe. Um, didn't make it through the House, but that was a huge step forward. Every time it gets introduced, it gets discussed. It gets brought up in committee. More and more people hear about it. People hear about the fact that, uh, uh, they learn about the unconstitutional wars and the, the destructiveness of it. And each year we're building a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's only a matter of time before a state passes it. And then once that happens, you're going to really see momentum going because what happens is that, you know, people like to copycat. So if one state can get it through, uh, you'll start to see that compound. But sometimes it takes a long time. I tell people all the time, uh, they introduced a medical marijuana bill in Illinois like 10 straight years before it passed. So it takes persistence we have to be willing to gain ground by inches. We can't get discouraged. We have to keep pushing forward, but we can make progress, and we are making progress every single day, thanks to uh, the the dedicated work of folks like Caleb uh, and Heisa and others who are doing this work on the ground, people like you. And, and that's really what it's all about. We have to keep pressing forward day by day. We can't let debilitating pessimism uh, stop us from the fight because that's exactly what the powers that be want. They want us to stop, get discouraged and go away. Um, and, and I'm not willing to sacrifice my Liberty on that altar. And I know other folks listening aren't either. Yeah, 100%. So we're definitely going to be advancing that, uh, forward, but, um, if, if yes, but since we keep bringing up, uh, nullification, uh, I want to give people an example of, um, where it's worked. 
like I, cause I know you've, you've done some stuff on the, the on the local level um, where we've been able to like make, make some sort of uh, change where, you know, local legislation has either been like challenged and reversed or, you know, where we've been able to, you know, just put the brakes on something that the state or federal government is doing. So can you talk about um, just an example of something you've worked on uh, has, has made a, a clear impact? Well, I'll give you an example of something that I know that the Mises Caucus has been heavily involved in, and that's the uh, the push to legalize or at least decriminalize uh, magic mushrooms right. or uh, psilocybin. I can't ever say that word right, the active ingredient in that. Uh, these mushrooms have been shown to have medical benefits. They help people with PTSD. They can help people uh, that are dealing with addiction issues. Um the federal government, just like marijuana, says that they should be absolutely illegal. And yet we're now starting to see localities uh, decriminalize and even entire states. Oregon uh, is the prime example. But this started in Denver. Uh, we've seen a number of, of cities in uh, uh, Michigan that have uh, that have decriminalized these things. So basically taking that that the huge example, I mean, marijuana is the best example of how this has worked. Um, there's just no questioning and no denying that state and local efforts have undermined federal prohibition of marijuana. Um, so now we're starting to take this to the next level um, in, in something such as uh, uh, magic mushrooms. Another great example of a successful nullification campaign was um, what is known as right to try. Um, and it kind of just, the quick overview is that the FDA has complete control over medications and um, and um, various treatments for chronic diseases, uh, um, diseases where people are going to die. And oftentimes the FDA will deny people the opportunity to try experimental treatments. Now, if you have something where you've been diagnosed, you know, you're going to die in six months. How ridiculous is it that the federal government's going to come around and say, well, it might be dangerous for you to try this experimental treatment. So we're not going to allow that. That's exactly what the FDA does. So um, a number of years ago, and this, this actually came out of, um, oh gosh, um, the Goldwater Institute in Arizona. They're the ones that kind of created this piece of legislation. It's a state-level bill that allows folks to try experimental medications that have not gotten FDA approval. Um, it started off for folks that were diagnosed with um, uh, something that is, is fatal. But now we're starting to see states actually expand it to allow people to use experimental treatments when they're just dealing with chronic illnesses. And it simply creates a state mechanism where folks can access these experimental medicines or these experimental treatments and bypass the entire FDA process. And uh, the best example of where this worked in real life was the state of Texas. There was a doctor there. Uh, he was working on an experimental treatment for the cancer that actually killed um, uh, jobs over at Apple. And he had uh, a bunch of people that were in this program. And then all of a sudden the clinical trial ended and the FDA said, Oh, you can't give them this anymore. And so he was able to continue treating those patients under the state right to try law. And we saw folks that were having success with this treatment, not have to die because of the FDA. So, you know, another fantastic example, ultimately 40, I want to say 44 states passed right to try laws. And then finally, I think it was 2018, the federal government was like, oh, <clears throat> we're going to change this system so that people can access, you know, the feds acted like they were doing it. The only reason they did it was because all of those states did it first. So those are some examples of, of where nullification strategies have, have worked. Um, I've particularly worked in the, the realm of surveillance and we've seen, uh, ordinances passed at the local level to kind of curtail different surveillance technologies, particularly facial recognition, um, or at least creating processes where uh, these type of 
invasive surveillance technologies have to be approved by the city council before the police can go out and just buy them. Because a lot of times they just use federal money and get this stuff without anybody even knowing. You can at least take step one and require that to be approved by the city council. And it gives the individuals in that locality the option and the ability to go in and say, hey, no, we don't want this. Uh, so there's really, you know, the the opportunities to use this strategy are really only limited by our creativity. We can find ways to to put wedges in all kinds of various issues uh, using nullification, refusal to cooperate, or just simply doing things to make it more difficult for the government to do things in, in secrecy um, or uh, without any kind of oversight or transparency. So, you know, it, again, it's just a matter of folks figuring out, okay, this is an issue that's important. This is what we need to stop, or this is what we need to happen. And then figuring out creative ways to get that done. And, um, you know, we really need more folks that are focusing on that in the local level. I always say that, you know, if we could take the, the billions of dollars that we're going to spend on the next stupid presidential campaign, if we took just a million dollars of that and applied it to these kind of local activism things, we could actually see real changes. But of course, the powers that be don't want that. They would rather spend a billion dollars, you know, deciding what uh, sociopath's going to sit in the Oval Office instead of actually doing things that limit the ability of the government to trample on our liberties. Yeah, it's good that you say that because that's the that's the direction the uh, not just the Mises Caucus, but the Libertarian Party as a whole now is generally going in. We're focused, we're trying to focus more on those local level elections where yeah. like the winnable ones. Yeah, past, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause in the past, like, you know, I think the lowest level office they seem to pay a lot of attention to was state rep. And that's, that's all well and good, but that in most cases, that's hard to nearly impossible to win from the libertarian party standpoint, you yeah. know, we need to build up more trust and run for those lower level positions like township supervisor, for instance, like that we, you know, once we get people in there and build up that trust on the local level, that's when we can have more impact and, you know, a chance on those higher level races. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's again, it's back to what Thomas Jefferson said. The ground of liberty is to be gained by inches. So you take the inches where you can get them, right? So if you can win a city council election or a constable election or a sheriff election at your local level, um, you know, there's so many local offices where oftentimes there's not even anybody running against the incumbent. So there are opportunities out there. And that's really something that I, I, I'm, it kind of makes me hopeful about the uh, Libertarian Party and just you know, just for full disclosure, I'm not a member of any political party uh, for the work that we do. That wouldn't you know, wouldn't jibe real well because we do work with Democrats. We work with Republicans. We work with Libertarians. We'll work with anybody who is trying to bring about policies that are going to move us closer to liberty. But it does encourage me to see the LP moving in that direction and focus on those local elections where you can get real results. And then you get folks that, that are in positions where they can have real influence. You, know, you get a, a libertarian on a city council, they can create all kinds of havoc. And, uh, and, and that's a good thing. And again, as you say, the more success you have, then the easier it becomes to start pushing up that food chain. You know, you have somebody that is successful uh, at in a local office, then they're going to have a much better chance of running for a state office down the road because they have a track record. You know, they have that name recognition. They have all of the things that are required for success in electoral politics. And, uh, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, running a presidential candidate. And, and there's certainly a lot of messaging opportunities and, and, and those kind of things. I'm not, you know, I want to downplay that, but the real work is going to get done at the local level. And, uh, and so I think that's a wise strategy. Yeah, I think that the consensus of the, uh, at least where I'm at in Pennsylvania, the party there for the most part, was to even last year um in even years you can i think the lowest level position that you can run for is state representative other than that's just state senate and right. you know u.s senator u.s rep and on 
So, you know, next year is a little bit different because that's the presidential cycle. And we do plan to run a candidate on a purely messaging. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be the goal of that campaign. So we we are coming about it as the Mises caucus from that angle, which right. you know, totally makes sense. But in, in terms of at least my personal attention and I think the attention of most of the LPPA, we're spending more time and energy this year than we were last year for the very simple reason that in the, these odd years, this is when we can run for, you know, township supervisor, township auditor, um, all those local level offices that do have a chance of making a difference are up for election yeah. this year, just like they were in 2021. And that mm -hmm. that's where we can make the real difference. And that's where we actually have a chance of winning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, what you said about the uh, right to try laws also, uh, that also hit home. Uh, we've uh, had, uh, I don't know if you met her at the, uh, take Human Action event in New York, but um, Irene Mavrakakis um, is going to be doing a presentation at the uh, Solutionary Center Liberty class that we're going to be doing, talking about medical freedom. Mm -hmm. And the the only hard part about that presentation was um, distilling her part of it down to five or 10 minutes because yeah. there's so much to say about medical freedom. For sure. Um, yeah. And that, 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 those laws in particular, just um, they hit home for me because there's been a lot, you know, and as they do for many libertarians, because there's been so many problems with medical freedom. I, I never even thought about it very much before uh, 2020, but now it's just just jumped to the forefront with how yeah, important it is. For sure. And, uh, you know, it's it's really when you get down to it, it's uh, when, you, when you talk about self-ownership. That's the core of self-ownership, right? I, I should have the right, I do have the right to decide what I want to put into my body, how I want to take care of myself, how I want to access healthcare. And unfortunately, we're in a situation where, again, thanks to all of this federal bureaucracy, we have almost a monopoly on healthcare. Now, again, there are things that we can do to break that down. Uh, one of the things, uh, another issue that we've pushed strongly at the Tenth Amendment Center is the idea of facilitating uh, direct primary care, which is a, a system where instead of you know going through your traditional insurance and having that doctor-patient relationship, that way you actually pay a fee. So I'm actually, I have a direct primary care physician here in Florida. We pay about $225 a month for my wife and I, and we have full access to our doctor basically 24 seven. Like I could text him right now if I'm having an issue. I don't have to go through the doctor's office. He can get much cheaper lab work. Uh, it's a fantastic system. And so if you have state laws that make it easier for direct primary care uh, doctors to operate, then that creates a free market alternative to the traditional insurance doctor relationship. And, and really that, you know, um, Again, it goes back to decentralization. We want to decentralize everything, give people market options, give people opportunities to choose. That's really what we're pushing for at, at the core. We want individuals to have the right to choose their own path, whether it's healthcare, whether it's what they put in their bodies, whether it's, um, you know, um, anything, how, how they choose to defend themselves, all of these things. We want to create a world where people have the most options and choices available that they can, and then let the best thing win. And um, so that's really the core of, of, I mean, it's really the core of libertarianism, right? It's the idea of, of self-direction and autonomy. And um, I think most people can get on board with that. So that's really what we're trying to do when we talk about decentralization. Yeah. We're really talking about uh, making more choices for people. Exactly. So uh, as we're winding down here, why don't you tell us uh, what's coming up for uh, Mike Harry and what's coming up for the 10th Amendment Center? Well, thankfully, what's coming up for us uh, at this point is, is a little bit of a, of a break. Our busiest time of year is between about November and running through the end of April, which is when 
uh, starting in November is when you start seeing bills introduced. Most state legislatures start in January and they usually run uh, through March or April. There are some state legislatures that run year round and there's some that go later, um, later in the summer. But um, our busiest legislative work is in, in the uh, winter and spring. And so summertime is actually, actually an opportunity to dig into a little bit of research. Um, you know, it's, it's, we can get into some of the constitutional history and, and refine strategy for the upcoming year. We'll update our state of the nullification movement report as we get later in the summer. It's an opportunity for me to do more long form articles. So I'm not focusing totally on, on bill reports and stuff. So I, it's fun for me. I get to get to get into a little history and, uh, and, and kind of big picture policy stuff. Um, just for example, uh, there's an article that we published today over at the 10th amendment center about real ID, uh, May 11th, uh, 2008 was supposed to be the implementation date for the Real ID driver's license uh, national identification scheme. Um, it is now May 11th, 2023, and they still haven't gotten that fully implemented because state and local governments refuse to cooperate. So there's a great article about just kind of the history of that and and uh, why it hasn't been implemented. Uh, folks can check that over out over at 10thamendmentcenter.com. So we do a lot more of that kind of thing in the summer and the fall. And then the uh, the winter and the spring is more directed at legislative work. Yeah. PA, as I understand it, is one of the states that's been dragging its feet on that. And I'm, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know. So uh you already you mentioned the website earlier, which I'll add to the show notes. But um, how can we follow the Tenth Amendment Center on uh, social media as, as well as yourself? And what kind of content can we expect on there? We are everywhere. If there's a social media platform, Michael Bolden, who's our founder and executive editor, he's got us there. So you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on the Facebook uh, you can watch our videos on Rumble. Um, I mean, MeWe, I don't think there's a platform that we don't have a presence on. Um, and, and so folks can can check out what we're doing on, on whatever platform you're interested in. Um, we have great content in terms of, of written content. If you want to read over at 10thamendmentcenter.com, we also have uh, Michael Bolden three times a week does a, a video podcast where he covers different issues and and constitutional history and all kinds of interesting things um, that you can find again on all of our social media platforms. Um, I do a lot of one minute videos um, that are kind of designed for Instagram and, and uh, TikTok and Twitter and those types of things where I try to make one real quick point in a minute. Um, and, and so we have content for pretty much everybody. If you want short articles, We've got short articles. If you want longer form articles, we've got longer form articles. If you want constitutional history, we've got constitutional history. If you want videos, we've got videos. So um, you, you can find something that will uh, satisfy your appetite no matter what it is. And, and uh, again, all of it is focused on the idea of resisting the feds, the idea of decentralization, and ultimately promoting liberty because that's really what we're all about. We're about liberty. We're about human thriving. We're about getting government out of the way because government basically is is just making our lives more miserable, more difficult to live, and, and making um, making us less prosperous than we would be. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, that that's a good point to end it on and basically summarize the whole show. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's, uh, Great way to, to uh, sign off there. So thank you very much, uh, Mike, for coming on. I'm glad we were able to uh, get it to work despite the technical difficulties yeah. at the beginning. Uh, so um, hopefully uh, we'll be seeing you at another event uh, in the near future. Yeah, for sure. And I uh, appreciate it. And we can do three cheers that my internet actually held up for, for the entire, I've been having internet problems all day. So 
Um, I'm glad that I'm glad that we stayed nice and steady here on the internet front. So yeah, me too. Yay, uh, yay technology. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did just think of one more quick question uh, before you go. Uh, I'm very curious about the poster behind you because I can oh, I can see the bottom part of it and I like the bottom part. So what's right. on the rest of this? <laughs> so here we go. I'll tip the uh, camera up so you can see the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. I, like I, I that. can't remember the artist's name. Um, he actually is the guy that did the uh, the Obama, the uh, Hope thing. So he, he's uh, actually okay. kind of a lefty, but um, I don't know. Love the poster and the messaging and the yeah. artwork on it. So Yeah, for anyone listening to the audio, it says uh, make, make art, not war. war. Yeah, that reminds me of our own Regina Badger, who had the sign at the um, Rage Against the War Machine rally. It said, drop acid, not nukes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so good good signs all around. So thanks again, Mike, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, thanks for having me. All right, everybody, don't forget to take you in action. Until next time, have a good night. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.